So I was on I was on Instagram the other day, as as we do, we're young men. We're in Generation Z. And I've just been seeing a lot of these like infographics being shared around. And I like don't get me wrong, like I share a lot of infographics. I'm one of I've, I'm mm. one of these people. I think it's good. I think these infographics like infographics are like useful because they're like quick ways for people to learn things. They're accessible. It's kind of like with picture books. People understand pictures better than words <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. They're picture yeah. they're picture books for the socially aware. Yeah. And what I've noticed is a lot of people repost these infographics on many different topics without actually checking if the information is correct. And a mm. lot of these infographics don't even have sources on them. It's just like we're supposed to take their word for it. I guess that's like the double-edged sword of the internet as well. It's like, it's really good for spreading stuff, but then at the same time, it's really good for spreading stuff. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean it's true. And 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 the thing is, like, a lot of this information I'm seeing posted all over the place is just straight up not true. Mm. It started because, you know, I'm, I am Jewish, as you'll hear me say a billion times if you ever have a conversation with me. I, I've noticed a lot of misinformation about Jews being posted everywhere. And then I and then I thought like, okay, well, I'm assuming it's not just happening to Jews. I'm sure I'm assuming like mm. a lot of these infographics have misinformation that has either just lazily been put into it or is people are purposefully trying to mislead people. And I, I want to say like, I do this. I even do this, right? Like I have posted, I've reposted things without actually like doing the research and and checking if it's correct, right? Mm. It's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'm trying to get better at it. And that's all we mm. can ask of people. I think it's that whole kind of like echo bubble thing because that's the kind of thing that's been like freaking me out. It's like with all this stuff like QAnon, you know, 5G conspiracy theories, and then all these like old school Jewish conspiracies coming back from like the dead. It's like, yeah, where are people getting all of this? And I think it is that kind of thing where like people are stuck in these tiny bubbles of just this self reoccurring like echo chamber. That's all they're getting. What um what I've noticed is a lot of these infographics usually like usually they have some good information in them the, the even even the um the misinformed ones yeah yeah and i mean this stuff comes around like all the time and like that's the thing that really kind of annoys me is it's like we've had a lot of practice dealing with times in history where misinformation has spread like wildfire but it's something that we don't ever learn from like ever and like i would say that's the biggest problem today we live in a time where like we know everything at the click of the button. I mean, Wikipedia, all that kind of shit. It's like, it's the greatest invention probably in human history, but also it's like the greatest weapon in human history. And we can see that playing out in front of our eyes today. I think um, we need to normalize calling out misinformation whenever we see it mm. because of what you were saying with it. it's so powerful and it really is mm. the root of almost every issue going on right now climate change racism islamophobia anti-semitism like all of this is mm. rooted in misinformation being spread to different people and honestly like hey this is directly to our listeners if you if you hear misinformation in this podcast like call us out maybe mm. like you know send us a review or, or maybe d unless it's a bad review and then maybe just 
DM us or something. Yeah, that's one of the things. Right, this is good. This is kind of out of left field, but like, there's a lot of distrust of the media nowadays, and I think to a large degree that's you know coming from a genuine place because obviously the media is very powerful in affecting how people think about stuff. But here's the thing: is that I still think today a lot of traditional media and good journalism is the best bet at defending against misinformation. Like that's the point of good journalism. That's why, like, for all of the annoyances people have with things like the BBC or in America, like all of the mainstream news networks, they are fundamentally built on trying to figure out what the truth is, which is which is basically impossible. But at least they're trying. Most people don't even try. They just decide that's the truth that I want, and then they go with it. I think. I think. With journalism, my I, mm. I come from a family of journalists. My mom was a journalist. My great grandmother was a journalist, and my mom actually left journalism because journalism was kind of dying when she was in it. Because fast news, like these infographics, were spreading so quickly. It, 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 good journalism is definitely a rarity now. Yeah, but like I was saying before, if if we don't, we want to do our best. We're really trying to do our best here to stay unbiased and to to research everything before actually saying stuff on here. Mm. Um, so if, if, if you hear something that's incorrect on here, please, please let us know. And we will publicly address it. And we, and we will like, we don't, we don't want to be adding to the problem. Um, we're trying to fix this problem. So, so don't, don't feel like we're just all talk and no walk. Yeah. And, and also on top of that, sometimes even things that are completely true, you can still, this sounds weird, but you can lie with the truth. Like everything is kind of a narrative. And that's, I guess, what a large part of like mainstream news today is. Because I, I disagree with a lot of people. I think most mainstream news is completely truthful. It's just that maybe they are following a line to, you know, construct some kind of narrative. And we're probably going to do that as well. <laughs> yeah, so then, like, <laughs> call us out if you think that we're constructing some kind of cliche left-wing liberal kind of like oh look at this thing kind of narrative which i i know is overplayed a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so basically this rant and yes i know there are too many podcasts where people are just ranting about things but that's that's what this is you saw the title you clicked on it you know why you're here don't try and be a little cheeky right now you want you want us to rant a little bit the reason we're ranting about all of this is it's such an important topic and it's not a new issue. Um, it's been around forever and it continues to pop up and then go away and then pop up and then go away. And it just, it, it leads to violence and it leads to death and it leads to all these bad things. So instead of just sitting around watching all of these misinformed infographics on Instagram and people saying things that just aren't true, I think it's a much better way to deal with it, to, to sit around and, and, and look at it and then ask yourself, how did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? How did we fuck this up? How did we The year is 1894, Napoleon is dead, and France is in near constant war, 
The country has recently suffered terrible losses in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and the wounds are still fresh. Nationalism has taken hold of the nation as the country poured resources into the military in anticipation of another war with Prussia. The French army was not loyal to the now powerful republic, but to the flag. It's at this point in history that the idea of counterintelligence becomes a thing, being a novelty in the past. The brand new French statistics division, headed by Lieutenant Colonel Jean Sandier, side note, a staunch anti-Semite, the new division would be committed to exposing France's enemies and spreading lies, although that's not as official. At the end of the year, a French army captain is accused of sending intel to German forces. That person was one Alfred Dreyfus, an Alsatian Jew, and he was innocent. The trial was completely rigged, and evidence was manufactured to ensure that he was found guilty. Funnily enough, the prosecution put forward both fake and real evidence. Since the 1880s, a Prussian army officer had been having a homosexual affair with an Italian officer. Although this is a completely unrelated matter to the Dreyfus affair, knowledge of this sexual relationship found itself into the evidence in the Dreyfus trial including both real and retroactively manufactured accounts that lended more credence to the prosecution's case. But it can't be understated that France was very much in the grips of anti-Semitism, and it's for this reason that Dreyfus was already a marked man. Okay, so you you set the stage pretty well. So with all that context, with that rise in nationalism and anti-Semitism came also clericalism, which is basically like political power for the church, which is, you know, always, that always turns out great. <laughs> so there was this one dude who I started researching and I, I just wanted to focus on this guy because he's just, he's just a character. So his name is Edouard Adolphe Drummond. And yes, his middle name is Adolphe. He published a publication called Jewish France, which basically proposed the idea of like Aryans versus Semites that would mm. pop up later in Nazi Germany. Just to like further convince us that he's the bad guy, he founded the Anti-Semitic League of France in 1881. This really reminds me of the Mitchell and Webb sketch now. Are we the baddies? <laughs> as, as a Jew, reading this was sad, but also kind of funny, which, which I think is a mm. lot of Jewish humor. So he was clearly a very pleasant man that hated everything on both sides of the political spectrum. So there are three types of anti-Semitism that Drumont and the Anti-Semitic League of France proposed, and they kept like shoving this down people's throats. There were three main types. There was the traditional Catholic church style, Jews killed Jesus. There are the Christ killers and stuff. You see that pop up in, um, I was researching like Jack the Ripper and stuff, and they immediately blamed the Jews for that as well. Around the same time, 1888, that was really popular then. A lot of the London civilians there would, would go around pointing at Jews on, on the stoops of their houses and going like, Christ killer, and stuff like that. <laughs> so <laughs> the second type is hostility towards capitalism. Drummond hated capitalism. Hmm. And I guess he thought, you know, Jews are capitalists because like, hmm. you know, depending on what your political beliefs are, you can claim Jews are either capitalists or communists. It's there's always some like non logic involved in this type of stuff. But I guess that kind of follows the Jewish stereotype of like, you know, Jews and money, I guess. Sorry, my cat mm. is jumping on my lap. Sorry, he's trying to walk on my keyboard. Get him get in my lap. Peter, come on. 
This is really difficult. Okay, I've got him. All right. Um, so the third type is so-called scientific racism, which basically said that there was a Jewish race and that that race had undesirable characteristics. So you see that pop up again in Nazi Germany later on. Like the whole skull measurement thing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like that. And also like the idea that like Aryans have certain definite attributes that mm. all people that are Aryan have and all people who are Jewish have certain attributes. It's 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 like a lot of debunked science stuff. If you've got blonde hair, it reflects the sun and you act as a solar panel and you can actually power yourself with electricity. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what the Nazis were going for. So in 1892, he started La Libre Parole, which was a newspaper that basically like spewed out all of this anti-Semitic ideology he had. They had one motto, it was France for the French, which kind of reminds me of some politicians. Yeah. I feel like you hear that gist of a statement get thrown around nowadays. Kind of reminds me of like America first. Because a similar thing is the fact that France obviously suffered a military defeat quite recently at this point. So then that's almost exactly the same as the setup for World War Two, at least, because they're in the sort of debris of a country being sort of destroyed, although it wasn't quite as bad for France. When I went to Hebrew school when I was a kid, um, we're always kind of like, uh, kind of reminded of the, the things, mm. the, the similarities between big anti-Semitic waves, I guess. And one yeah. of the big waves is like people are looking for someone to blame when mm. a bunch of bad things happen and the Jews are just kind of, uh, it's like old reliable, you know? You can you just go back to what you're familiar with. From my experience, nationalists don't like to blame themselves for that much. That's the big thing about nationalism is it's like, we are the best. And if you're the mm. best, like then why are you lo losing in a war against Prussia? So then they have to rationalize it. Exactly. Because it doesn't fit in the logic. Exactly. So like how we mentioned earlier, France was pretty much humiliated on a global stage with these military defeats by Prussia, which then turned into Germany, including part of France's annexed land. Someone on the French side was sending secret information about their new artillery and guns to the Germans. And one of those letters with the spy information being sent was intercepted and it was reported immediately. France started an investigation into artillerymen and anyone who might be sympathetic to Germany. By anyone, I mean one Jewish man. And they found Major Alfred Dreyfus, an artillery officer born in the recently lost territory of France. His first language was German, and he was Jewish. And as we know, there were lots of anti-Semites in power at the time, and a lot of the public agreed with them. So pinning this on a Jew... It was kind of the easy way out. Whether they really believed it was him due to their anti-Semitic beliefs or not, I, I don't know. But they definitely used him as a scapegoat during this. Yeah. So this is kind of where the anti-Semitism comes in with the case. By their logic, because he was a Jew, he was not loyal to France because Jews are only loyal to themselves. That's like a classic anti-Semitic belief. It's called dual loyalty. The belief is that Jews will never be loyal to whatever country they're part of. They'll only be loyal to other Jews, which is, may I remind our listeners, anti-Semitic. So he was put on trial. No evidence whatsoever. It was basically like a, a smear campaign, like in presidential elections here when they get nasty. So the only piece of evidence they had against Dreyfus was this letter. And <laughs> the handwriting of that letter did not match Dreyfus's handwriting in any way. So they brought that up in court and they said, that isn't his handwriting. And... <laughs> 
Their defense was he intentionally changed his handwriting to trick the French people in court. (laughs) So they used that as evidence that it was him because it wasn't his handwriting. They really were stretching here. They were really looking for any way to connect him to this. So this is kind of an anti-Semitic trope as well. Not even kind of, it is. Jews are manipulative and tricky and masterminds and stuff. They have the power to change their handwriting. (laughs) That's quite incredible. I guess you can put the pen in your other hand and write it. But no, 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 no. Only Jews can do that. (laughs) Um, So... As a Jewish man myself, I've I've had, uh, to a much lesser extent, I've had people say things to me where it's kind of like based off of the same, oh, you can't trust him, he's a Jew, and like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, and I think that kind of comes from a place of Jews have always been kind of shuffled around countries as genocides pop up every now and then. Mm-hmm. And so Jews have always kind of had their own separate culture in addition to the culture that they're part of in their own country. So I think people see them and they're like, mm-hmm. you look like me, but why do you not worship the same things as me? It's quite a similar kind of suspicion people have of immigrants, but it's slightly different because with immigrants, I guess it's even more obvious in a sense because most immigrants are going to be a different color. Whereas often a lot of Jewish people, based on where they're born, will look mm-hmm. quite similar to the people in that country, which then maybe is even worse for anti-Semitic people because then they're like even more scared because they're like they could be anyone. That's basic. That's the basic idea behind this like stupid yeah. anti-Semitic thought, which is like, well, they purposefully look like us <laughs> so that they can trick us, and it's like, and let let me just clarify, we're talking about Ashkenazi Jews right now because um, yeah. we're dealing with Europe and mm-hmm. we're dealing with um, and there are other groups of Jews in Europe at the time, but the largest portion of them are Ashkenazi Jews. So after that mock trial, he was determined guilty of treason, and he was sent to a life imprisonment on Devil's Island in French Guiana in South America to serve for his whole life. And now it kind of goes without saying, but he was in fact innocent. (laughs) So in 1896, now keep in mind, um, Drummond is still in the government at this point, military intelligence found evidence saying Dreyfus was innocent. And it was actually Major Ferdinand Walson Esterhazy. So high-ranking military officials saw this and they decided to keep this hush-hush. What the high-ranking military officials did was they suppressed this new evidence against Esterhazy, and Esterhazy went to trial in 1898. But the French high command had already convicted Dreyfus and didn't want to look dumb, so they found Esterhazy not guilty. And they just pressured him to resign afterwards. And he ended up moving to England in 1898, which we will see happen again later in this story. And in 1898, that same year, J'accuse was published. (laughs) This was published by Emile Zola, who was a French novelist and playwright. He was not Jewish, but he published J'accuse on the front page of a newspaper, La Roure in 1898, accusing the high-up military officials of arresting Dreyfus because he was Jewish. So, as we were talking about before, France was anti-Semitic for 2,000 years before the trial. Recently, there was kind of a a flare-up of anti-Semitism, like we were talking about before. Yeah. And Zola reasoned that this was the cause of the Dreyfus verdict. He brought up the fact that there really wasn't any evidence against Dreyfus. There was evidence that it wasn't Dreyfus, but Dreyfus is still in prison for life. So this article kind of caused like a huge division in France at the time. There were riots in more than 20 cities in France. Yeah, like big, big riots. too, yeah. And they were all over, like Paris was like burning. Yeah, people died. 
So during this time of rioting and splitting France in two politically, it was like a huge deal. France was already split politically, and this was just more flame to the fire. So people who sided with Dreyfus were liberal-leaning French Republicans. They were called Dreyfusians, which I think is an amazing name. It is. It's very Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we were talking about that earlier. It does sound like Star Wars. They had a huge affinity for liberty and justice. Now, the people who sided against Dreyfus were conservative Catholic monarchists. How surprising. <laughs> How surprising. What? The Catholic Church loves the Jews. Um, so they their mode of thinking was pretty much the military is never wrong. The government wouldn't do that. And Jews aren't loyal to France anyway. And they're sneaky. So Zola was then brought to trial for criminal libel in 1898, that same year, because of this article he published. He as well fled to England before he was convicted guilty. So we have a good person over there and we have a bad person over there in England. But what a funny quote I found from him talking about his time in England. He said, the start of a brief and unhappy residence in London, living at Upper Norwood from October 1898 to June 1899. I don't really blame him. <laughs> London at the time was pretty bad. Especially at that time. It was pretty awful. <laughs> it was sewage city at that point. It, it was. It was sewage city. I'll refer to London as sewage city from now on. <laughs> so, back in France, the Dreyfusians got close with the Socialist Party of France. And in 1899, the government was pressured into bringing Alfred Dreyfus back to France from Devil's Island. So they bring him back to France. And then as soon as they bring him back, almost immediately, he was arrested again by the military and he was accused of espionage on behalf of Germany and he was found guilty again, almost immediately. And then the French military decided to forge evidence against Dreyfus before they even brought him back so they could look better <laughs> to the public. It's like a Black Mirror episode. It, it's, like, it's like if Monty Python was writing Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. He's not guilty. Yes, he is. No, he's not. He is. <laughs> Before they even brought him back, keep in mind, there, there are riots in the country because of their corruption that they've been caught red-handed. Yeah. Like, everyone knows it's happened. And now this, obviously, caused extreme political unsettlement, and even more riots started all over the place. The rioters were running around burning things, chanting, kill the Jews, in the streets of Paris and other cities. Britain and Italy condemned the French legal system as bullshit. Now, Britain and Italy were also anti-Semitic at the time. So, you know, put that into perspective. That's how bad it was in France. Yeah, I guess it's a sliding scale at that time. And then France <laughs> was slipping towards the other end. I think England will just use any excuse to make France look bad as well. Oh, that's the English way. <laughs> Stiff upper lip, have a cup of tea, blame the Jews, then blame the French. <laughs> so during all of this, by the way, Germany, who knew who actually was guilty, they just were silent the whole time. Of course they were. They know how to play politics. Just let France eat itself. That's pretty much what happened. This anti-Semitism, which is weird because all of these people who were not Trifusians, all of these Catholic monarchists were basically saying, well, the cause of all of this is the Jews. But really what they were doing was just making France look weaker and weaker on a global stage. And that always happens. 
like infighting will never make a country look stronger. Yeah. I feel like that's that's a good lesson to be learned from this. So in 1899, after all of these riots, this violent anti-Semitism was everywhere and everybody hated each other in France as they do anyway, but even more so then. The French president pardoned Dreyfus in 1899 to calm everyone the hell down. But but it's not over for Alfred. He would only pardon him if Alfred Dreyfus admitted he was guilty. <sighs> so, so far, he's been sent across the Atlantic two times. He's been accused guilty twice. He's been pardoned, but only if he will admit that he is guilty for something he clearly did not do. So Dreyfus was just like, uh, I just want it all to be over. I want I miss my family. I don't want to go back to prison across the Atlantic. So he just reluctantly said, okay, I guess <laughs> I'm guilty. And then the French government were like, we look good now. So in 1905, the Dreyfus Affair was published. It was a report basically exposing the French legal system as being incredibly corrupt and very anti-Semitic. This report came about six years later after the whole thing happened. Dreyfus was back living with his family. He was generally okay at this time, besides the fact that half of France wanted him dead. Now, this report accused the French government of forging evidence against Dreyfus, which they did do. And letting the real spy get away, which they did do. Jeez. So immediately the French president was like, uh, uh, whoops, that's our bad. <laughs> and then he got rid of all charges against Dreyfus and sent him back into the army. Wow, it's like a prize. You win. <laughs> now die. He said, basically, that's what happened. He was like, hey, Dreyfus, like, go on back to the army. You're allowed to get back to work now. And Dreyfus <laughs> left the army anyway because he was not happy with them <laughs> because they forged evidence against him. <laughs> so, so six years after all that, Dreyfus is finally allowed to just kind of, you know, live. Now, despite all of that, in World War One, despite the terrible treatment that Alfred Dreyfus got by the military and by the French people and the French government, he joined up again to the military to fight for his country in the war because he was a proud Frenchman. But I thought he was Jewish. <laughs> so then he just, he was like, you know what? People are always going to hate Jews. I still love my country. I still don't want us to lose in this war. I still believe in our cause. He was still a, mil a military guy, right? And there is a real humor to this. And I think that's the interesting thing is that really the funniest thing is it's that the French government are kind of this really ignorant, buffoonish group that are just capitalizing on the hatred of Jews, which obviously is sad, but then there's this very Monty Python aspect to it. Exactly. If you treat someone as less than human, there's basically no end to what could happen. And obviously, history shows that time and time again. Once you start dehumanizing people, you start looking buffoonish to history, and mm. the people you're demonizing like this and claiming are inferior or even superior in some instances, like the Nazis thought Jews were a threat. Once you start categorizing them as subhuman, it becomes a slippery slope. And yeah. you'd be surprised with how easy it is for common sayings to then quickly spiral into demonizing a group of people. There's one last thing I wanted to talk about in this section. It's a little edgy. I am not taking a stance in this. I am merely just stating that it's interesting how history aligns. During those riots in Paris, when they were chanting, kill the Jews, kill the Jews, they were throwing bricks through Jewish businesses, they were burning things down, they were assaulting Jewish people. There was a man who came from Austria, who was a Jew. He escaped Austria to move to France. 
to escape anti-Semitism right before these riots. Terrible timing, right? So Parisians were chanting, kill the Jews, burning down buildings in his neighborhood. And all he had to console him was this amazing beard he had. So his name was Theodore Herzl. This man is an incredibly controversial figure in history right now because he is connected to Zionism, which in itself, there, we could do a whole episode on the history of that. It's a very complex and very, uh, it's, it's hard to simplify that. But he is seen as kind of the godfather of the idea of modern Zionism, which is the idea that Jews should have their own land and that they will not be safe in a land not run by Jewish people. Um, So the Dreyfus Affair, he watched this obsessively. And this convinced him that wherever we go, Jews will never be safe in non-Jewish countries. So Herzl went on to create Der Judenstaat, which translates to State of the Jews, which was an organization where he made the first argument for Zionism. So this is a quote from him. If France bastion of emancipation, progress, and universal socialism can get caught up in a maelstrom of anti-Semitism and let the Parisian crowd chant, kill the Jews, where can they be safe once again, if not in their own country? Assimilation does not solve the problem because the Gentile world will not allow it as the Dreyfus Affair has so clearly demonstrated. Now, this idea of Zionism encourage Jews to escape persecution in Europe and go live in Ottoman Palestine with the native inhabitants there. Many escaped from all over Europe, the Middle East, and Russia from different genocides and pogroms and other things. And in 1947, 50 years later, the Ottoman Empire falls apart and Britain takes over that area. And then two states are formed, the Jewish Israel and the Arab Palestine. And so starts the Israel-Palestine issues that are still going on today. So I just think it's kind of interesting to see how the Dreyfus Affair directly influenced Mm. history still going on today. There are a lot of Jews claiming that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism because I think about Mm. 90% of Jews are Zionists. But then again, Zionism has a very, very vague definition. And there are a lot of different types of Zionism and people have different opinions on Zionism. And it's something to bring up, not to get into the Israel-Palestine thing, but with Mm. this idea that Theodore Herzl started in the future, there are going to be some really bad things that happen in the name of Zionism. I just think it's interesting how it's connected to this. Because that's the kind of thing that I find interesting, is obviously France, at this time, is ironically was seen as this bastion of liberal enlightenment. Mm. But then again, it shows you how quickly that can change, which I think people often forget. And obviously, you know, see that connection in a lot of the world now. Because most of the West is traditionally very liberal. Well, ever ever since the Enlightenment. Yeah, and like the basis of the United States is founded on these incredibly, you know, enlightened ideas that were directly taken from the French Revolution. And Thomas Jefferson and several other founding fathers spent a lot of time in Paris with revolutionaries over there. Yeah, things change quicker than people think. That's kind of the main thing to take away from the Dreyfus Affair, in my opinion, is that France was seen as as a safe place for Jews and for you know other groups of oppressed people as well. It was seen as a liberal place. And even despite that, because of this idea of, of free speech and stuff, which of course I'm American, I'm a big fan of free speech. But the dangers of that is that really dangerous misinformation is able to be spread amongst the people really quickly. And 
that can create a really unsafe space for many minority groups. Something, something, the internet. <laughs> something, something, social media. <laughs> yeah. At QAnon. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just think it's something that isn't really studied very often in mainstream like podcasts or movies and stuff. You don't really hear about the Dreyfus affair very often, but I think mm. it's really, really relevant to modern politics today. All right, so we have done our time in France. Thank God we're out of France. Exactly. <laughs> we're going a bit further in time to an example of anti-Semitism spreading through misinformation and into mob mentality and stuff in the U.S. in the early 1900s. In 1908, a Jewish American named Leo Frank moved from New York to Atlanta after graduating with a degree in engineering. He was an educated man, quite an upstanding individual, as uh, the people around him would say. He got married at 26 down there, and he became the director of the National Pencil Factory. Nice. Exactly. He did. You know, you're doing well when you're the director of the National Pencil Company. Um, now, at the time, of course, it was the early 1900s. There was a lot of child labor going on. Um, and it was kind of unchecked because especially in America, because the Puritan Christians came over and they came with this work ethic where it was like being idle is ungodly. And you should all be working all the time, even if you're a child. So then that kind of took off in the U.S. because yeah. the U.S. was like, oh, we can make money doing that. And of course, you know, the welfare of the workers, it was not really a, a priority. Now, the South was actually pushing for child labor to like stick around. Most Southern places mm. were sticking for that. The North was kind of pushing for limiting child labor. But weirdly... This factory owned by Jews, the people were in the town were incredibly upset about these children working in this factory. And I, I haven't seen any like pure evidence saying this, but it's my assumption that the fact that a Jew owned the place upset them and they were like, they must be doing something to our kids. To be fair, cool. children should not be working in factories. But with that being said, all children were working in factories at that time. <laughs> um, so in 1915-ish, at 31 years old, Leo was arrested for the murder of a white girl child who worked in his factory. So they had, again, much like the Dreyfus affair, they had very, very, very little evidence that it was him. They actually had no evidence that it was him. And they actually had some evidence telling them that it was impossible for him to commit this murder because they all of his like he had people saying no I was with him in this office at this time all of his time was accounted for and the coroner said that there had to be 30 minutes for the murderer to strangle the girl and kill her and then bring her body down to the basement area and then come back up to the office now he didn't have 30 minutes of free time. He was a busy man. He was running around like dealing with stuff. And you can like, you can read all this on the Wikipedia. You can read this in like um, articles at the time. Like it was pretty clear he didn't do it. But because of this atmosphere where people were like, Jews are manipulating our children, they're, they're doing weird stuff with them in factories. Like there, it goes back to this kind of anti-Semitic blood libel thing where it's like Jews kill Christian kids and take their blood for matzah or whatever, you know, just like killing Christians all the time. So what happened was he was, you know, he went to court for it and the court was like, he did it. 
because he he is going around sleeping with all these Christian women, which he also was not doing. But for some reason, everybody was fixated on his sexual life. And they were insisting upon the fact that he has been sleeping with all the women in his factory, even though the women in his factory came up to testify. And they were like, no, he's a great man. He's never approached us sexually ever. And they're like, yes, he has. So <laughs> because of that, they were like, he's guilty. So then the Jewish community in Atlanta at the time was working their ass. They were, they were working their asses off to make sure that he didn't you know, get executed because he was on death row for like a year and mm. he didn't commit this crime and everybody kind of knew he didn't. So the Jews were working to um, they were doing appeals after appeals after appeals for about a year to get him off of death row. They finally get him off of death row. And then he was sentenced with life imprisonment instead for a crime he did not commit. Mm. The people of Georgia were really, really, really angry about this. They were furious. And there was a bunch of misinformation from the newspapers being spread around at the time. They were saying things like Jews saw the murdered girl as just a factory Christian girl is a quote, which it's, I don't know. And then they also said that the Jews were secretly working <laughs> to get him out, whether he was guilty or not guilty. So there was a guy named Tom Watson who was the editor of the Jeffersonian at the time, and he was an incredible anti-Semite. There's another Star Wars reference. <laughs> Trifusians, Jeffersonians, they're everywhere. <laughs> but he, uh, so in his newspaper, he put forward the question, he, so he, Watson also questioned whether Frank expected extraordinary favors and immunities because of his race and questioned the wisdom of mm. Jews to risk the good name of the whole race to save the Christ. decadent <laughs> offshoot of a great people. <laughs> so he basically was saying wow. that like Jews thought he was guilty, but they were like, Oh, we can't have a Jew give us a bad name. So they all united to get him out. This man was falsely accused of a crime. He did not commit. There was no real evidence. There was evidence to the contrary. It's very similar to the Dreyfus affair. It's pretty ironic considering that in that time, without doing anything, Jews had a bad name anyway. Why were they even worried? <laughs> yeah, it's like... It <laughs> they could basically do nothing and they'd still get a bad name. You can't, you can't really make it worse for the Jews at the time. I mean, the fact that he, <laughs> with that being said, Jews were able, there were a lot of groups in America at the time where it, it was not possible for them to, you know, get factories and stuff. And it's really only because mm. the Jewish community is so, after like, you know, thousands of years being shuffled from country to country, Jews have kind of perfected the art of going to another country and kind of like setting up their own little town or their own little communities and yeah. helping each other out a lot because nobody else will and everybody hates them so the fact that he was able to become a director of this factory is amazing um and and other mm. minorities in america at the time weren't given that opportunity but there were definitely a lot of hoops to jump through so the jews at the time especially through these anti-semitic newspapers jews were seen as the symbol for yankee capitalism coming down from the north and mm. and having sex with all the southern women that that seemed to be <laughs> that seemed to be like the go-to look for jews in the south i have no idea why he moved to atlanta i i just have there's not i wouldn't do it today not no offense atlanta but there's just it's not really the place where Jews really think of immigrating to, especially coming from New York. Mm. So yeah, yeah. now I will give a little warning. It will get a little violent, a little disturbing. White supremacy mm. comes up. And I will tell you now, Leo Frank was not as lucky as Alfred Dreyfus in France. So with that being said, I'm going to go talk about the Knights of Mary Fagan. 
Mary Fagan was the girl who was murdered in the factory. And because of this misinformation about Jews being spread by the newspaper and about the crime being also spread by the newspaper, a group of goyim, which is a Yiddish term for non-Jew, a group of misinformed, angry, armed goyim formed into a mob and they broke into the prison that Leo Frank had just been put in for life. They kidnapped him. They took him out of his cell and dragged him back to the, the hometown of Mary Fagan. And then this happened. The New York Times reported Frank was handcuffed, his legs tied at the ankles, and that he was hanged from a branch of a tree at around 7 a.m., facing the direction of the house where Fagan had lived. The Atlanta Journal wrote that a crowd of men, women, and children arrived on foot, in cars, and on horses, and that souvenir hunters cut away parts of his shirt sleeves. According to the New York Times, one of the onlookers, Robert E. Lee Howell, wanted to have the body cut into pieces and burned, and began to run around screaming, whipping up the mob. Judge Newt Morris tried to restore order and asked for a vote on whether the body should be returned to the parents intact, and only Howell disagreed, so they did cut the body down. When they did cut the body down, Howell started stamping on Frank's face and chest. Morris quickly placed the body in a basket, and he and his driver, John Stephens Wood, drove it out of Mary Fagan's hometown. So this pseudo-judicial style of murder had a term, and it was called lynching. And this is kind of where the link between anti-Semitism and the Dreyfus Affair comes into America. This is a very American style of discrimination against minorities. Lynching is caused by the mix of populism and misinformation and stereotypes. Now, with all this being said, Jews were lynched, but Jews weren't even the most commonly lynched group of people in the American South. Black Americans in the South were lynched more often, and it is a horrible, horrible part of American history that is skimmed over way too often. The depiction of that is terrifying, but I think what it shows the most is the power of the mob. And I think this is why situations like that are so dangerous. The truth is, is that, you know, there's been lots of psychological experiments into this, but once people have a reason to act like animals, they will. And that's a situation where everything aligns with this kind of animalistic violence. No one's telling them, oh, this is wrong. They're living in a world where everything's being confirmed to them, you know. We are allowed to lynch this Jewish man because he's Jewish. It's all this misinformation that's spreading around about like, mm. they, these people were entirely convinced that Jews were coming down with Yankee Northern capitalism and taking over the South so that they could have sex with their women and basically kill their kids. Like these people were convinced of this, which is insane. Yeah. That's the thing though, is that people have to realize that like we were saying with the Dreyfus Affair stuff, it doesn't take a huge amount to leap from something less violent to something incredibly violent. It's a very thin mm -hmm. line, and history shows that time and time and time again. An important thing to remember also is that that only happened in 1915. That 
sounds like it was a long time ago, right? It was like a hundred years ago, but really, mm. it's it's really not that long ago. Especially looking at it from like a Jewish history point of view, that's mm. like a blink of an eye in Jewish history. So Jews are still very much afraid of this happening again. Jews have been dealing with this exact type of violence for 3,000 years now. I mean, it's only just 100 years, basically. Yeah. I think that people assume that violence like lynching is a thing of the past, but we've seen during this time of kind of like racial tension in the in the US right now with the brutality from the police and America getting split between, you know, police or Black Lives Matter. And I think people think that America's done with lynching, but it very much is not. So far, we've shown throughout history, the Jewish minority, obviously, have been used as scapegoats in Europe and America since, well, basically forever, since the beginning of like, the Christian calendar, sort of dating back to Jesus' time. However, this treatment is obviously by no means exclusive to this group. As white people, and by white people I mean people descending from Europeans, I guess that's basically what white people means now. Again, that term is bandied around in a very confusing way, especially by white supremacists. White people have effectively had the most power in the world since forever. And so because of that, whoever doesn't fit into that criteria obviously makes a perfect scapegoat. Because even if, in a weird sense, they are the majority, because there's cases where sometimes it's actually the majority that are the people oppressed, like often in America with African Americans. I mean, there were times when there were cities where most of the people were slaves, and still, you know, they had no power because obviously they weren't given any. Yeah. But this couldn't be more true for African Americans, which we shouldn't forget, lived most of their existence in America as slaves. Mm -hmm. When did slavery get abolished again? I don't even remember. 1865. Yeah, that's like a blink of an eye in a historical point of view. And still to this day, are not free from discrimination and injustice. When did the civil rights laws get passed? That was like in the 60s? Yep. I think sometimes people often forget how close things like that are. It seems like a long time ago, but it really isn't. Now, I'm going to go on to a topic that relates to stuff that we've talked about, but I should first say that, obviously, technically, I'm part Caribbean. My granddad is Caribbean, but in all intents and purposes, I'm basically, I'm a white guy. We benefit from white privilege. Yeah, like, I look white, no one would discriminate me, so bear that in mind as I continue. So what I wanted to talk about, and to illustrate the abuse of power that we've talked about with the Dreyfus Affair and now Leo Frank, is the story of the execution of George Stinney in 1944, a 14-year-old African-American boy convicted of murdering two white girls aged 7 and 11. I should say before I go into this, this story is really quite chilling, but mostly it's just incredibly sad. So this is the 1940s. This is 1944, the peak of the Jim Crow era. So the Jim Crow laws were the segregation laws in America. 
people probably know the stories about people being separated on the buses and toilets. Basically, everything was separate. And also, most American cities tended to be segregated by race as well. So this story takes place in Alkaloo, South Carolina, which is kind of your stereotypical Jim Crow-era small American town. So the story starts with two white girls, Betty Binnaker and Mary Thames, 7 and 11, as I've already said. Now, they were riding their bikes looking for flowers, as far as we know. And upon their journey, they came across a small African-American boy called George Stinney and his younger sister. And we know that they asked both George and his sister where they could find mayhops. And I think mayhops are like the fruit of a flower. Now, this was the last time the girls were seen alive. And how old were George Stinney and his sister? So George Stinney was 14 at the time. I'm not so sure about I think his sister was younger because mm. she's still alive. But we actually have a quote from his sister. And according to her, the girls asked, could you tell us where we could find some mayhops? And they simply answered, no. So as far as they know, that's their only interaction they have with the girls. But the truth is, is that the girls never made it home after that time. After this, hundreds of residents in Alkaloo went on the search for the girls. Now, this is quite ironic, including George Stinney's father. So the next day, their bodies were found in the ditch. There was evidence of extreme violence. The doctor of the time described it as nothing but a mass of crushed bones. Ugh. So this was a brutal murder. And I think there was evidence of rape as well. So it was really bad. And, and for that type of violence, it takes quite a lot of strength as well. An incredible amount of strength. And from the crime scene, the doctor seemed to think it would have had to have been something like a hammer, like a blunt instrument. Right. So as far as we know, the last contact they had with anyone was with... George Stinney and his sister. That was the only known contact they had with anyone before the murder. Even though it was like a very short interaction. Yes, it was barely an interaction. But here's the thing. There were a lot of rumors at the time that the girls actually went to the house of a white family. And this was reported to the police at the time, but ignored, which is obviously really quite interesting in context of the times. The police heard that the girls were in contact with George Stinney and his sister, albeit very brief. Within hours, they went to the boy's home, handcuffed him, took him to the police station, and interrogated him without his parents or an attorney. That's so sad. Yeah. It's almost like hard to fathom something like that. I think the craziest detail is the fact that he was detained without his parents or a lawyer at the age of 14. And also, based off of, like, no evidence whatsoever yeah, it was just that he'd been in contact with the two girls this is kind of a similarity with the leo frank lynching and with mm. the dreyfus affair where it happens with little to no evidence but these people react incredibly strong yeah they just go full force like i remember i was reading more about what the family was saying and for example the little sister i think was hiding in the garden in like a shed that's basically how she avoided getting arrested i'm assuming they would have arrested both of them, but she was hiding in the chicken coop or something like that. That must have been terrifying. Yeah. For ages, no one even knew where he was. For a while, the family just thought he was missing, not that he was actually detained by the police. I can't even imagine that the fear his parents must have had. Two children were just found murdered in the town, and then all mm. of a sudden their son is gone. Exactly, yeah. And also, these two girls should have their trial carried out properly. 
their killer should be found. Definitely. This isn't how the police should be doing mm-hmm. it. There's a proper way of going about this, and it seems like they're going into it thinking they already have the person. Yeah. So moving on. Until his trial, which was to take place a month later, he was detained in an unknown jail, not able to contact his family or a lawyer. Now, part of the reason for this was actually because there were calls to lynch him. Immediately after he was arrested, the townspeople caught wind that he was the accused. So immediately it was like, well, he is guilty now. Done. And obviously in this era, it's not hard to imagine why they would have jumped to that conclusion, even with a 14-year-old boy. So in a weird way, they also had to protect him from being murdered, which will become very ironic by the end of this story, because obviously he gets murdered by the state. That's also a similarity with the Leo Frank lynching, Mm. which is they kept him in jail because he would have been killed if he was outside. Yeah. So there's a lot of strange logic with all of this. The official officer who charged George Stinney wrote in a handwritten statement, I arrested a boy by the name of George Stinney. He then made a confession and told me where to find a piece of iron about 15 inches long. He said he put it in a ditch about six feet from the bicycle. They found at the crime scene a railroad spike, so that would have been the weapon used. Now, this confession only exists verbally in what this officer is saying. It was never written down. It obviously wasn't recorded. And George Stinney at no point in the trial would say that he actually committed the crime. So he denied it. He said he said he didn't. George Stinney never denied it. It's just that the confession, which was the only proof that the trial would actually use, only existed in what the officer said himself. Now, this will come back to a lot later in the story. Okay. So the trial took place in the town courthouse. Now, he was given a lawyer that effectively was almost non-existent. It was a state lawyer that they gave him to basically lose the trial. Now, I think a really sad detail in this story is his parents couldn't attend the trial because they were being targeted for lynching as well. Jesus Christ. So in the trial, in what was really a formality, the all-white jury, because at this time, only white people could sit on the jury. Now, obviously, it doesn't take a genius to figure out how that might cause problems. Yeah. They found him guilty in about 10 minutes, and they didn't advocate for mercy. They advocated for the opposite, which is why he was charged with murder and sentenced to death. So immediately after this, this is quite interesting, actually. In a lot of the writing about the story, a lot of people don't focus on. There was actually a lot of activism after this. There was actually protests, both from black and white, mainly Christian people, that the sentence was immoral and it wasn't Christian. It didn't show mercy, which is quite interesting when you think about it. And hundreds of people wrote letters to the governor of the state to be merciful and not kill the boy. But none of it worked. The governor was steadfast that he was going to die. There's an interesting story about whilst he was in jail, actually. Now, whilst he was in jail, he met a 17-year-old called Wilford Johnny Hunter. Now, there's an interesting quote we actually have from him talking to George Stinney. Hey, kid, Hunter asked, what they got you for? George replied, they're going to electrocute me. George said to Johnny, why do they want to kill me for something I didn't do? Why? And Johnny couldn't answer him. Now, this was the last day they would have together because the next day George would be going into his execution. 
So on the 16th of June, 1944, George Stinney would walk into the execution chamber with a Bible tucked under his arm. Now, picture this kid. He's five foot one, 90 pounds. He's tiny. He was wearing a baggy adult-sized striped prison uniform. Now, the electric chair was too big for him, so they took his Bible and used it to prop him into position. Now, his mask that he would wear was also too big for his face, meaning that everyone could also see his face. An assistant asked Stinney if he had any last word. Stinney replied, No, sir. The prison doctor prodded, You don't want to say anything about what you did? Again, Stinney replied, No, sir. Stinney's mask slipped off as the 2,400 volts of electricity surged through his body, revealing his face to all in the room. He was crying. Soon after that, he was pronounced dead. Now, in a matter of just 83 days, George Stinney was charged, tried, convicted, and executed for murder. To this day, George Stinney is the youngest person ever to receive capital punishment in the US. That is really, really heavy. It perfectly captures like what we were talking about earlier in the Dreyfus Affair bit. These people don't see these minority groups as people. They clearly dehumanize them. If they're able to treat a 14-year-old boy like that, even, even right up before he died, do you want to say what you did? They clearly have no sense of empathy for this person. And clearly because mm. he's black. I can't imagine them treating a 14-year-old white boy in the 40s like that. And also, I can't believe they didn't let the parents come in for the trial. Mm. That's insane. Yeah. That's disturbing. It's important to remember that like, this is based off of, again, little to no evidence. That's like the common theme to this. There's little to no evidence. But these people are entirely convinced. And it's clear to me that there was actually a backlash to this. Obviously, there were people that were completely fine with this. I would say the majority were at the time. But there was quite a sizable group in the town completely against this because they could tell it was fishy. But even that was ignored. See, that's the thing is there was also backlash in the Dreyfus affair. There was backlash in Leo Frank's lynching. But the thing is that backlash comes too late yeah, and it's yeah. too little. Exactly, yeah. It's like now, right, with the Black Lives Matter movement and everything and, and the whole idea of being anti-racist mm. instead of just not racist. There's a big difference between just morally opposing something and actively trying to stop something from happening. Yeah, I mean, to what you said about them not going far enough, as far as I can tell, most of the backlash was mainly to do with the fact that he was a kid, less to do with the fact that he was black. In any situation, whether whether it's discrimination against a black person mm. or a Jewish person, or if it's just, you know, shitty behavior by police or the judicial system, People know when it's wrong. They like the, yeah. they know. They always do. I don't believe this whole they didn't know it was wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. I think mm. people knew it was wrong, but the thing is, more people were okay with it going on than there were people who wanted to stop it. And it's very similar to other times in history, especially places like Nazi Germany. You have the perpetrators and then everyone else is like an accomplice. So you can think of the people in this time, the people that were just alive, just living, they are unwilling accomplices. If you're a white person growing up in this time, I mean, it's not surprising that you end up with racist views because everyone around you does. But that doesn't mean that you don't know it's mm -hmm. wrong. And it doesn't excuse you from not acting out against it. 
I actually saw like an image of the original newspaper clipping of people calling to write petitions. And it seems so like a gesture. It's performative. Yeah, it's just to make themselves feel better. They know that it's bad and they know that it's going to happen. And they know deep down that I don't agree with this. I think this is awful. But also, I don't want to stop it. I think it's also like they probably didn't want to put themselves in danger. But the fact is, there was a 14-year-old boy who was going to be killed. Mm. And like, if they didn't want to put themselves in danger, that just means that they weren't valuing his life as much as they were valuing their own. Now, I want to offer some slight optimism with this story. (laughs) Okay. Now, 70 years later, which would have been 2014... The trial was reopened. Now, this was quite a big thing. After this happened, his family never stopped trying to find justice for the boy. Basically, they got in contact with a lawyer. They reopened the case. Now, the issue with that is that almost all the witnesses are dead. The evidence is long gone. And it's a completely different legal system compared to them. But the trial took place. And by the end of it, his conviction was overturned. Now, the judge... Carmen T. Mullen called his death sentence a great and fundamental injustice. Stinney's sister said it was like a cloud just moved away. When we got the news, we were sitting with friends. I threw my hands up and I said, thank you, Jesus. Someone had to be listening. It's what we wanted for all these years. It's so sad that was so important to their family that all they wanted was just somebody to to acknowledge that George Stinney was unfairly lynched. It's. It took that long for that to happen. That's so, so heartbreaking. And his family never gave up on that. And I'm glad they got that justice. But at the same time, like it's still not taking back his life. That's, I think, the saddest thing in all of this is that the actual person that murdered those two girls, who are obviously dead now, will never find justice. Now, I should say his conviction was overturned, which means he's not guilty legally. Now, the actual family of the two girls still believe that it was the boy. It's not like they have any knowledge that the police don't. It's all based on the same stuff. But they seemed very happy with the original guilty verdict. But they were also surrounded by their entire community telling them that they just killed the person who did it. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think this is something that comes up again in today with all kinds of legal stuff. I feel like the police sometimes, they want the victims to be happy, right? They want the families of the victims to be happy. So an easy way to do that is just to find someone who is guilty as quick as possible. Then it's just nipped in the bud. They have someone to blame for the rest of their life. They don't have to live for years rowing about it. I mean, look at the Madeleine McCann case. That gives you an idea of what it's like when you don't know who's done something. You spend your whole life thinking about it. Maybe in their minds, I'm really playing devil's advocate here, they were just trying to find peace for the family in a weird way, and they used the obvious scapegoat. I'm sure it was probably easier in their minds to Mm. think someone outside of our community did this, instead of this could have possibly been one of the white people in our community. I'm sure it was easier for them to think, uh, well, the, the black child did it. Mm. But I think that's the sad thing is, like I said at the start, there were rumors that the girls went to the family of some white people after seeing George Stinney and his sister, and that was not followed up on, and that could have led to something. I'm assuming it would have, because it's pretty obvious that he didn't do it. (laughs) It seems like they wanted the quickest possible trial. 
the Dreyfus affair, the Leo Frank lynching and the George Sinney lynching all have a lot of similarities when it comes to people being misinformed by either other people in the community, by the judicial system, or by newspapers and media. This populist group form a community around the idea that something that isn't true is true. And when you're united by something like that, nothing is going to convince you otherwise because they're in this giant echo chamber of mm. a mob that yeah. is just basically hyping itself up. Then you see stuff in the Leo Frank case when the judge was able to convince them not to cut up and burn the body and to send the body back to his parents. But he couldn't stop them from cutting the body down and then stomping on the face of the man. Yeah, and like, yeah. it's It just shows the pure amount of raw power that this mob mm. mentality can create and it's terrifying it really is and stuff like this still carries on and oftentimes not in as obviously a brutal way this kind of scapegoating and oppression in these forms tend to be a lot more subtle nowadays but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it doesn't mean that it can't exponentially grow yeah it doesn't mean that it can't get to that history is quite cyclical things boil up and then they kind of explode. And that's what we should be avoiding. And it's things like this that are an incredibly good example of cautionary tales of what can happen when things are just left to boil and boil. When it comes to minority ethnic groups, there is nothing scarier than misinformation being passed around about your ethnic group. Because as soon as one person believes it, especially with today, because misinformation is spread so quickly on social media, as soon as one person believes it and reposts it, all of their followers will see yeah. it. And then it just takes one more person to repost it, and then all of their followers will see it. It's so, so quick for stuff like this to be passed around. You need to know if what you're looking at is biased or not. So as you can see, misinformation can lead to some pretty bad things. When it takes hold of a group of people, a society, it can lead to death, it can lead to genocide. And so these are just some examples of many of the history of this information and the damage that this can cause. I think it's really important, and I think that's what this podcast is all about, that we can't just stand by and like passively let a new era of misinformation spread. We need to call it out before things don't get as bad as obviously they have done in the past. And this is what we hope this episode has covered. It's like things like that happen in the past, but they can easily happen again. I think something important to bring up is these are just some examples from many, many mm. examples of the history of misinformation and the damage done by it. This is not a new thing. We wanted to make that clear through this episode, but it goes even beyond that. It's it's misinformation has been around for thousands and thousands of years, and it's been causing violence and death and hate for just as long. Mm. So before we end the episode, we want to give you, the listeners, five steps to take before sharing information online to be sure you're not spreading misinformation. So 
it's much easier to prevent the spread of misinformation than it is to deprogram people who have convinced it's true. Like, if anyone has experience with dealing with people with really deeply rooted prejudices or conspiracy theories that they really hold on to, it's not easy. And I think people really need to be careful when they're dealing with that because it's it's often too easy to, I think, condescend and act like you're coming from a place of authority. But I think what people really should do is question people a lot more. So asking why people believe the things they do. These people who have been convinced of this misinformation are convinced that other information is the misinformation. It's very confusing, but Mm. these people are locked into their beliefs and it's so much more difficult to convince them to backtrack out of that than it is to just prevent the spread of misinformation in the first place. So with that in mind, we're going to list five steps, five steps you should take before sharing information online. So Isaac, do you want to start with the first? So I think the first thing, and this should probably make a lot of sense, is search online for that information or claim. If you see something online making a claim, there's so many fact checkers. Like, I mean, S- Snopes yeah. is a good one, but I think I think in general, just cross referencing your sources is a must for whenever researching anything, let alone seeing information about social justice or or, or an ethnic group or or religious group online. You need to cross reference that information before you are passing it along. You need to go online and you need to Google or whatever search engine you use, I don't know, look at other sources talking about the same thing. Make sure that information is not just this one account saying this one thing. More sources are better. So like, if you're getting your information from one kind of place, or for most people, I think that's probably their social media accounts. That's not enough because it's going to be your friends. It's going to be people that probably think like you. Yeah. So the second... The second step you can take is you can look at who posted this information. You can go into their profile. Sometimes sometimes it's a, a profile that hasn't been active for very long, or sometimes it's uh, their post history is just filled with kind of iffy looking things, or if they're clearly posting a lot of very extreme um, opinions, or, or if they have any clear biases, just be aware of who is posting this information? Could they have any other ulterior motive Mm. for posting misinformation? And I think another thing is obviously check the profile picture of the account. This seems like a kind of weird thing, but, and this extends to a lot of images on the internet. If you, there's a lot of good websites for this, but even with Google, you can do reverse image searches. You'll find that a lot of these images are taken from like stock image websites or even like, uh, what's the term, like catfishing where they're using someone else's image. So there's a lot of fake pictures and accounts out there. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of bots Mm. that have been made purposefully to spread misinformation online. And a lot of them go unchecked. So fourth step, search for other social media accounts um, that this person may have. Sometimes um, this goes back to the, the point of looking at who posted this content. Really go in depth here. If it's a really extreme point of view or a really important point they're making here look at if they have any other accounts they have see if they have any other accounts online where they might 
be less filtered. They might be a bit more <laughs> public with their biases. Do you think that they're coming from any specific place trying to prove a certain point? Mm. And I think that ties into the sort of last step, which is inspect the content of the account posted. So why would that information be being spread? So let's say when it goes to conspiracy theories, usually there's a reason why they have certain information and forget others. It's like, try to critically think about why are they saying that? What, how does that tie into a prejudice? How does that tie into other sort of political ideas? Because usually that will give you, like, some things are too good to be true. That's a really good mm. red flag as yeah. well. There, there, you'll As you start to notice more and more misinformation online, you'll see red flag upon red flag just mm. reappearing with every different account. If it looks too good to be true or if it, if it looks like they're saying exactly what a certain group of people want them to say or want want to be true, it's definitely a red flag. Even mm. if it is not misinformation, it's it's enough of a reason to do more research into it. Yeah. And I think like thinking about what happens when like if you see someone that you know not doing this, which I will I guarantee is probably everyone then I think the best way to approach that is to just ask people, just very sensibly just question them and ask them why they think that thing. So let's say they post something that is untrue or based in a prejudice. Just ask them, uh, why did you post that? What was your thinking in your posting it? Because usually I think what that will highlight is that they just weren't sure about something. A lot of people accidentally spread misinformation. I see it as it's our duty as people online, as humans on this planet. We need to call out this in, this misinformation when we see it. We can't just let it spread. So see it as like you're doing them a favor. If they've posted something that you've looked into and you found that it is misinformation, it's okay. It's not aggressive to just send them a message and just say, Hey, um, I did some research and found that this specific point they made was not true. And I feel like that is a bit dangerous to be sharing this stuff. Just thought you might not be aware of that. You don't have to be aggressive about it. You, you can be nice about it, but it is important mm. to let them know. The worst thing to do is to act like people are stupid for believing a lot of this stuff. Because I think that's the go-to thing for people is to just be like, oh, well, they're just stupid. The reality is every human on the planet is susceptible to misinformation. It's just a fact. So it's important to be very sensitive to that. It doesn't matter what political group you're part of. It doesn't matter what other beliefs you have. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. Every single person on this planet, like Isaac's saying, everybody is vulnerable to misinformation. Our brains just work that way. We like information that pleases us, mm. whether it's true or not. Don't look down on people for unknowingly believing this information. Now, if they're if they know it's misinformation and they continue to spread it, you just need to do your best to just let as many people know it's false as possible. So that's been quite a jaunt through history. I mean, 
we covered some pretty dark stuff. We covered some important stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Mm. This is, you know, this is our first shot at this. I mean, we're trying to be very, you know, professional in all of this, but we also, you know, we're quite laid back. You know, we're quite relaxed. Yeah, this is a, a chill zone. We're cool. Yeah, a chill zone, if you will. We want the listeners to feel like they're just chilling with us, <laughs> but at the same time learning with us. <laughs> we're making education cool. <laughs> We're like those like supply teachers. I don't know what you call it in America, like substitute teachers that like come in but are so much cooler because they're always younger. That's us. Listen, we're like we're the teacher that you like. We're yeah. the teacher that'll like let you use your phones mm. in class. We're the teachers that smoke weed. Yeah, we. We're the, we're, the, <laughs> we're the teachers that show up with like a bottle of wine. Yeah, <laughs> drunk, crying. Yeah, we're drunk the entire time yeah we're not we haven't been drunk yeah. while we record this i swear but in class we are <laughs> yeah thanks so much for listening um hopefully you enjoyed it and hopefully you learned something mm. you know we we, we don't want to be too serious we don't want to be too silly it's a whole thing trying to figure it out but uh i think yeah we're just having fun you know we're just mm. kids having fun yeah we have like a number of plans for future episodes and like these episodes are probably gonna I mean, I'll say this. I think they're going to get better. Yeah. I think they're going to get better and better. Congratulations. You just finished our worst episode. By definition, this is as bad as it gets. Yeah. I mean, we say that. We say that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see how bad we can get. But we really want to know, like, we want to know what you guys think. So, you know, through your app, through your podcast vehicle, you know, send us a review. But also, like, you can follow us on all of our social media. That'll be at how did we fuck this up the fuck is fck so that's without the u we're family friendly on twitter it's how did we f this up i know that's confusing but yeah yeah we're family friendly in the podcast that's when the profanity comes out but then yeah but all of the advertising we're family friendly (laughs) so we're we're tricking you really yeah genuinely like we want to know what people think yeah is there anything you want us to talk about uh are there is there anything going on today that you'd like to know the history of are you confused about anything that's mm. happening in current politics or culture? Mm. Which I'm, you should be. You should be confused. <laughs> Obviously, this podcast is called How Did We Fuck This Up? Everyone has these stories that they know about that maybe they think people haven't heard enough. And, you know, there's stuff that we're obviously not going to know about. So please bring that to our attention. You know, if it's, if it's a good story, we're definitely going to cover it. And if you're a smart person, unlike us please get in touch yeah we, we could use some help <laughs> um anyway but uh i i'm eli hensley if if you want to follow me on instagram you know i'm not gonna fight you my instagram is eli effing hensley that's f-i-n-g yeah you can find me on most things but on instagram i'm easy boy with underscores in between every letter which is probably going to be quite difficult to find but i i go by isaac phillips so that might be a bit <laughs> <laughs> Isaac's a composer. He has some very nice music out there. Um, it's, it's very much worth listening to. Eli is himself a very talented musician. I recommend his latest album, Stop Art, which I agree with. Yeah, we don't like art. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much for listening again. Hopefully we didn't turn you off. Um, hopefully you want to come back. If we sound pretentious, we're really trying not to, but we still might. We appreciate it. Thank you. Shalom. Does shalom? Does shalom mean goodbye as well? I don't know. 
Yes. Oh, wow. It's like aloha. Well, what I'll say is shalom and shalom. Shalom and shalom. We'll see you. We'll see you next time. See ya. We love you. We love you. We love you.